Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name's Tanner, I'll be one of your hosts today, and in a minute or two here we'll bring in Taylor. Before we get there, we have two new patrons we'd like to thank. So big thank you to Reese and Jose for joining us over on Patreon. We hope you enjoy all of the bonus stuff that's over there, the back catalog, and we'll have some new bonus stuff coming out in the next week, two weeks or so. While we're on the topic of Patreon, I do want to mention this previous week, we were able to make a donation to the organization Care for Gaza. That's run by Mohammed Smiri. You should give him a follow on Twitter uh, if you don't already. He has narrated the Palestinian struggle for a long time, you know, well before any of the current aggression in Gaza. So give him a follow. You can kind of see what his charity is up to, um, where those donations are going. And again, we just appreciate the fact that we're getting that support, that we can direct some of that to things that we care about. Obviously, Palestine doesn't need money, first and foremost. They need the bombing to stop. They need the attacks to stop. Just this past week, uh, during the Super Bowl, we watched simultaneously as Rafah was bombed, you know, a, a so-called designated safe zone. So obviously, as we've been doing, as, as we have been doing since October 7th, obviously, we support ceasefire. Uh, but beyond that, big picture, a free Palestine. So with that, let's bring in Taylor. How's it going? Hello. How have you been? Not too bad. It's uh, cold in Ohio today. We got some snow. We got like four inches of snow, a little bit more than I expected. But uh, it's going to be 50 degrees here on Wednesday. So It's finally winter again here. Mm. It warmed up to like it was in the 40s and 50s in like the beginning of February, which is insane for Wisconsin. But then we just the other day got a little bit more snow. Uh, it was down in the teens. Uh, yesterday and into overnight it's 24 right now pretty cold uh this morning letting the dogs out yeah it was like creepily warm for <laughs> much of this winter uh here in wisconsin speaking of warm in spring one of my media check-ins is college baseball's back hmm. that's fun i've actually i don't know i've kind of been into it this year so far east carolina's off to a great start and they actually have a really cool story right now involving one of their players named Parker Bird. And bringing it back to the podcast, he was actually involved in a boating accident. I think it was 2022 hmm. and had to have one of his legs amputated as a result of that. And as of, I think, the well, as of opening day, he was the first player in NCAA history to play with a prosthetic. So hmm. it's pretty cool. Um, he was told he might never walk again, much less play Division One baseball. And he's he's working his way back. So. And it's a really cool story that somewhat does tie in with our show. I would be kind of surprised if you told me that the first player to play with a prosthetic wasn't until 2024. Yeah, that is kind of surprising. But yeah, that's a great story. I had seen that on some of the you know sports headlines, and then I saw you and dad texting about it. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, then the other thing, I've kind of got back into the Great British Baking Show, Great British Bake Off, whatever, legally, you're allowed to call it in America. I don't know. It's pretty good. I've only seen probably the first couple seasons of it. I think this is like season 
seven. This is like the second newest one that's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I just watched the Mexican week and it lived up to all my expectations of a bunch of British people making Mexican food. So it's funny that the British British people are a little, um, how do you say, spice adverse. But then mm-hmm. there's like one lady who's of Malaysian ancestry who's just like put it all the spices in there. Like we mm-hmm. did, you know what I mean? It's very interesting. You can just tell who's cooked with flavor before. It's something. Uh, listening to Paul Hollywood deconstruct a taco is something. We watched a few seasons of Great British Baking Show. It does have notable differences from your average American cooking show where the fact that a, they're all nice to each other. Yeah, they're more supportive of each other. Like it's it's less focused on the interpersonal drama and more just about the competition mm-hmm. everyone's just kind of doing their best and providing some some support and in, in general it's just a kind of a, a good feeling show to watch yeah i feel like even when they totally miss the assignment even the mean one paul hollywood is still like oh well this is wrong this is wrong but it tastes good you know like he's still like they still find things to be like oh this is a good thing i've definitely i've enjoyed watching that i haven't seen it in a couple years but it Mm -hmm. it is time definitely a great one to put into the rotation of competition shows uh what about you well i had a weird problem this past week and weekend where i I started having like really terrible back spasms which i've never experienced before so i I didn't really know what's going on And that's one of those things. Anytime you have something new going on, you start Googling and you start saying all the things that could be wrong with you. It's like, do I have cancer? Do I have a kidney stone? Back cancer. <laughs> do I have back cancer? And last week, I'd had a sore back for a few days. Um, and then on Saturday, Sunday, I just kind of rested because I figured, you know, if I strain my back somehow, I should rest it. And that was a mm-hmm. terrible idea. Um, that's <laughs> not what you should do in that situation, I guess. Went to the urgent care on Monday and explained all the stuff. She's like, oh yeah, like it, that just happens sometimes. And really the best thing to do is just to keep moving it, stretching it, walking all of your normal, all of your normal stuff you would do. So it ended up giving me a, a, a pretty sweet muscle relaxer. <laughs> For some of that time I had, I had some time to watch a lot of stuff on television, Netflix. I started watching the Witcher, which I really enjoyed. Okay. Um, I hadn't actually seen that yet, but it's, it's, I haven't really played the games either. Have you have you played the games at all? No, but I really enjoyed that. Uh, another thing that Katie and I watched was the movie Straight Outta Compton. Okay. That was really good. We, we both it? really enjoyed that movie. It has a lot of the things that you expect from a music biopic. You know, it's mm-hmm. two and a half hours and you've got to tell the whole story of NWA and its contingent parts. So it has all the kind of the normal tropes where... Mm-hmm. Something happens, and then the next scene, they're putting together one of their famous tracks that you know. There's a scene where they're getting hassled outside their studio by the cops, the LAPD, and they go right inside, and, and Ice Cube is there writing, uh, and he's like, oh, I got something for this next track. And of course, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. the police. Mm-hmm. But it was great. Like, it, it was really, really well done, really well put together for, for what it was. Ice Cube is played by O'Shea Jackson Jr., his son. So Fair enough. there's a lot of scenes where basically indistinguishable from the real thing. Dr. Dre is played by Corey Hawkins, who played Clemens in Last Voyage of the Demeter. I actually really liked him. Yeah, he was really good. Although my, my concern is that he's he's now been typecast as a doctor. <laughs> I actually didn't recognize him while I was watching the movie, but a very young Snoop Dogg is played by Lakeith Stanfield. Huh. And he nails 
the mannerisms, the voice, the delivery. It's it's all so cool. <laughs> and then also Paul Giamatti is in it. He plays Jerry Heller, their manager. Is this, this has to be one of his last movies, doesn't it? Uh, it's from 2015. I guess I couldn't have told you it was that old. I thought it was like 2019. Well, Giamatti was also, I know, just in The Holdovers. That's one that Katie and I need to watch. Okay. But uh, Paul Giamatti really delivers in that role because the role of Jerry Heller in the history of NWA and working with, you know, Easy E and, and the rest of the, the the crew, kind of initially a very kind of a good guy character who's who's giving these, you know, these these guys who no one else is really giving a, a chance to saying, hey, this is something that has legs. This is something that will sell taking this style of music seriously, which for, you know, an old white music producer is is not really standard fare. Mm-hmm. And he does a great job of delivering in that and then kind of very slowly introducing the more possibly nefarious aspects of it. You know, that's one of those stories where he said, he said who was in the wrong and who was going behind people's backs. But he does a really great job of delivering the nuance of that role and kind of slowly introducing the the manipulative sides of the character. The guy who plays Suge Knight, I, I don't know the actor's name, but he, he, he's so good as Suge Knight. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's just there's just so much so much good stuff in that movie. I, I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I, I really even expected to. Nice. It, it really stood out. Definitely recommend it. It's one of those that I'm always going to watch and just never do. I think one of the last things that Suge Knight did before he went to prison for a long time where he currently is, was send a threatening letter to the director of that movie over his portrayal. <laughs> I guess it kind of proves the point of how he's depicted in the movie. <laughs> so anyway, moving on to our story today, I, I guess to, to something else that has explosive temperament. The episode is titled The USS Princeton. But as we'll see, that's not really the thing that's going to have the problem in the story. I have skimmed these notes. And I am so excited for one of these characters to make an appearance. This is a story that I think anyone who who uh, reads about or is interested in the U.S. Navy for sure probably knows this story. Also, people interested in presidential history. As I was reading through this and all the side characters and cabinet people and just the different people in the president's circle, I was thinking of you know all the type of people you'd meet in an episode of Presidencies of the United States in, in Jerry's podcast. <laughs> so... It, it was cool to do some of that style research for this one. Mm-hmm. The first main character that we'll introduce here is our ship, the steam frigate USS Princeton. The Princeton's actually a pretty big milestone in American history, as she has the honor of being the first screw steamer warship in the history of the US Navy. Screw steamer being just a steamship that instead of using paddle wheels on the side is using what we would just call a propeller today. It's also a phrase that Wolf Larson would have used. Screw the steamers. She was 164 feet long, 30 feet, 6 inches in beam, with a draft of 17 feet. And in addition to her steam engine, she was rigged with three masts for sailing. So this is still very much that combination period where ships are being built uh, to do both. Again, the most fun time in maritime history. It really is. She's also connected to another pioneering vessel from American history, the ship and Specifically, her boilers uh, were designed by John Erickson, who would later design the Monitor. Interesting. The first American ironclad. Uh, So construction on the Princeton started in October of 1842, and she was completed the following year. She was designed to carry 12 42-pound carronades, 
But her real showstoppers here were her two 12-inch guns that fired shells of 225 pounds. Okay, those are some big guns. One of these guns had been cast in Liverpool, England at the Mersey Ironworks, and she was nicknamed Oregon. (laughs) I didn't look into why, actually, but I think it's just a nickname because of the border dispute that we were having with Britain over the Oregon Territory at the time. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. That's most of what we'll say about that gun, because nothing else really interesting happens with her. The other one that we'll hear from later in the episode, though, is nicknamed the Peacemaker. Hmm. Peacemaker was described in the March 1st, 1844 issue of the Baltimore American as, quote, by far the better piece of workmanship. Oh, so it's the better gun. It is. It's supposed to be. Okay. The designs for both of these big guns had come from Robert F. Stockton, who was the Princeton's captain. So this man's an inventor of sorts? So kind of every aspect of this process, he has creative control over what's the ship like, what kind of guns does it have. He has a lot of uh, leeway here. Okay. The Peacemaker was built by the Hog and Delamater Ironworks. Uh, These are based on Stockton's specifications for a 12-inch wrought iron gun. The construction process is pretty complicated, though. So wrought iron? It's interesting. Is, are all guns made out of wrought iron at this point? No, absolutely not. I didn't think so. That would be an interesting choice. It's a great question. That was not the standard practice for building big artillery pieces at the time. So you're telling me this man is an inventor who wants to use a different material for a known process that already functions well. Yes, although this was something that was being explored, like people had been trying this out because there were known advantages that this would have if you could make it work, unlike trying to use airplane material to build a submarine. Okay, for example, Uh, one of the big sources here, this is actually where I found this story. I didn't know the story before uh, was from Donald Shamet's book, Shipwrecks on the Chesapeake. So quoting here from that. He was first told the job was impossible. The use of wrought iron in artillery construction had been attempted with regularity for some years, but with frustratingly little success, except in the production of small caliber weapons. The difficulty lay in the welding of the larger parts together, particularly around the breech. Bronze was usually used, but was costly, and subsequent overheating of the piece often resulted in inaccuracy when firing. That's something that'll come up at the very end when they look at why this this accident happens is the process that goes into welding and forging these things and the heat that's used and the heat that's necessary to cast, especially these things, once you make them bigger. The, the problem here is with scaling this process up. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, they're, they're, they've been used in making small arms with with really no problem. But Scaling it up to these larger caliber weapons is a problem. There's a few reasons that Stockton's pushing for wrought iron rather than cast iron. And this information is coming from Lee Pearson's article, The Princeton and the Peacemaker. A larger gun could be constructed of wrought iron for a given weight. In addition, larger guns supposedly could be built of wrought iron, since beyond a certain point, increasing the thickness of cast iron did not increase its strength. Other advantages claimed were less erosion of the barrel, a more regular trajectory, and more destruction upon impact. For anyone who's interested in that aspect of these things, about the construction, the testing of these guns, that Pearson article goes into a lot more detail. So if you're a 
uh, interested in heavy artillery, give that article a read. I'll post it in full to our Patreon. This being a U.S. government project, Stockton was operating within a designated budget, and that budget wouldn't cover the cost of building and testing both of these guns. The firm only agreed to build the gun that would become the Peacemaker when he promised to pay out of pocket for the testing expenses. He's kind of in a quandary from what I understood of of this, where the government is saying, we're not paying for this until you show us that it works. Mm -hmm. And the firm is saying, we can't build this until you pay for it. So yeah, so he's just stuck in the middle. Yeah, so he had to pay for the testing part out of pocket. Back in the good old days when you could just buy a naval gun with your own money. Yeah. Can you imagine like today if you were trying to sell the government the F-35, like you got to build one yourself first. However, and I think I forgot to put this in the notes, but that is an interesting question about like, can a private citizen just buy a big gun like this? And I think the answer might have technically been no, because that gun he bought from Britain had to be shipped over labeled as something else. It was labeled like a not a hydraulic tube, but some kind of <laughs> some kind of industrial tube it was labeled as rather interesting. than interesting kind of like that big super cannon that Saddam Hussein. Yeah, that's exactly what that made me think of. It had to be labeled as something different. <laughs> Didn't think we'd talk about Saddam Hussein in this episode, did you? (laughs) When the live fire trials were undertaken, Stockton was impressed. As a gun, it was perfect. And I do not think that any charge of powder can injure it. And as a piece of forged work, it is certainly the greatest achievement up to this time. (laughs) I love this. It's amazing how many of these stories, like there's always a quote you could go back to. I. Love this. This is as good a time as any to introduce the fact that (laughs) our main character here, Robert Stockton, he is the, I think he's the grandson of Richard Stockton. Richard Stockton being one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Uh Uh-huh. One of whose relatives who bore his name was Stockton Rush III. (laughs) And I don't actually know because Robert Stockton had, I think, 10 children. I don't know Mm -hmm. if he's the direct ancestor of Stockton Rush or if it was a different, you know, branch of that family. But like they're related somehow. Yes. And we we see this gene here for making a good quote that will subsequently look pretty funny in hindsight. I love it. And also the fact that we're using a different material to make a thing that works perfectly fine a different way. Like. It's strange how much this story parallels the Titanic submersible. This is epigenetic memory right here. <laughs> this is like Assassin's Creed. <laughs> you gotta hook him up to the Animus. <laughs> you have to go back in time and make a bad gun. <laughs> You're actually supposed to kill the president. Yeah, John Tyler is secretly a Templar. <laughs> so Stockton had overseen the construction of the ship itself. The ship had received its name Princeton after Stockton's hometown of Princeton, New Jersey. So he's kind of in control of all aspects of this process. Interesting. The construction of a screw steamer warship fell in line with Stockton's outlook regarding the U.S. Navy as a whole. Uh, So quoting again from Pearson. Stockton was a strong advocate of a technologically superior Navy and argued that each new ship should be of the largest size and adapted to the largest guns, while existing ships should be converted to steamers. Some parallels here to where we talked about the German Navy mm-hmm. uh, pre World exactly War One. I thought of kind of having a new focus of it's not about how many ships; it's about having better ships. If we can 
you know, outgun and outdistance, outperform the other ships, then we can have a superior Navy just based on technology. Stockton's already actually a figure of some renown in the Navy, which you could probably assume given just he, he's basically given a blank slate and said, hey, design the warship you want, put whatever guns on it you want. He's got all this input over the design of this ship, this, and he's spending quite a bit of government money on it. So let's take a look at why. Let's look at his career up to this point. Next section, I'll be using information from an article in the Naval War College Review by Marvin Duke titled Robert F. Stockton, Early U.S. Naval Activities in Africa. Oh, no. That's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> The United States had officially outlawed the international slave trade in 1807. Slavery itself, of course, remained legal at the federal level for about another 60 years. We don't have time to sidebar to the whole Civil War. I have so many thoughts about that. (laughs) During that half century plus where the practice was legal, but the trade was not, that, of course, gives you fertile ground for an illicit under the table slave trading Mm -hmm. market. There's not really much power behind this decision to ban the slave trade until March of 1819, during James Monroe's first term as president, when Congress approved a law that took a more hands-on approach to the policy. Quoting here from Marvin Duke. The new law authorized the president to deploy U.S. naval forces for the express purpose of seizing all American ships found to be or to have been trafficking in slaves. Furthermore. As an incentive to those charged with enforcing these measures, the act authorized the equal distribution of all property seized between the U.S. government and the officers and men bringing the offending vessel to justice. So now you're probably thinking, maybe, slave ship, equal distribution of all property seized. Does that mean slaves? No, God, like, it does not. It like wouldn't have surprised me, though, if it did. <laughs> Any enslaved individuals found on board these seized vessels were brought to, quote, responsible U.S. officials who were then charged with returning the individuals to Africa. I wasn't able to research uh, the process yet, so I don't actually know much about this repatriation process. I don't know if any attempt was made to return people back to roughly where they had been taken from. My gut feeling would be no, just based on what I know about the colonization process next. Um, But it's possible. Sometimes things do surprise you. Each person turned over to U.S. officials in this fashion was worth a $25. uh, Bounty is the word they use at the time. We would probably say reward instead Mm -hmm. for the crew who had seized the ship. So even if these the the U.S. U.S. Navy, even if there's not maybe a moral motivation to do this, there's a financial one. One of the officers dispatched as part of the new African squadron was a young lieutenant named Robert F. Stockton. Stockton received his orders on February 14th, 1821, which read in part, You have been appointed to the command of the U.S. schooner Alligator, now at Boston and equipped for sea. When ready for sea, proceed to the coast of Africa, thence cruise along the coast in the usual course of the slave trading vessels. When you shall arrive upon the coast of Africa, you'll endeavor to find U.S. agents J.B. Wynn and E. Bacon and communicate with them upon the objects connected with their establishment and your crews. You will take on board the alligator, one of the U.S. agents, and some of those appointed by the American Colonization Society, and proceed along the coast to examine the different points and most suitable place to be fixed, to be fixed on for a future settlement. 
interesting part here for the time that he was in command of his own vessel. So despite the fact that his his technical rank was a lieutenant, since he was commanding his own vessel, his rank was actually bumped up to lieutenant commandant, kind of as a temporary thing, as long as he was in command of a vessel on his own. This had an associated increase in pay from $40 a month to $50 a month. That's probably a pretty significant raise, I imagine. It's a pretty nice bump uh, for, for a month. Also, did I just read the phrase American Colonization Society? Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that in a second here. That okay. has to do with uh, Liberia. Okay. Which isn't a thing yet, but will be. We're, we're looking for Liberia right now. Uh, essentially, yeah. <laughs> Stockton had joined the Navy in 1811 at the age of 16. This was after deciding to cut his education short, having entered Princeton at age 13. This is like still back in the Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton times, mm-hmm. though, where you could do stuff like that. Yeah. You could just, you know, go sing a little hip hop ditty and, and get in. He was seeking an accelerated course of study. He got a bit out of sorts with a buddy of yours. That's just how things happened back then. Yeah. Stockton's first assignment as a midshipman was on board the frigate President, where he was chosen as aide to Commodore John Rogers due to his energy and coolness under fire. By the end of the war, technically December of 1814, even though the Battle of New Orleans happens after that, (laughs) he'd been promoted to lieutenant. His next deployment was in the Second Barbary War, serving under Stephen Decatur against the North African kind of semi-Ottoman state of Algiers. It's kind of weird that we sort of fought the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, kind of. Also, we talk about Stephen Decatur a lot. He's always a side character in he is one of those guys that's just around. He's probably yeah. one of the ones actually doing stuff, though. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he shows up a lot in episodes from, from this time period. So especially as a younger officer, Stockton was very prickly about honor, his own and that of U.S. sailors in general, which led to multiple instances where he felt he needed to defend that honor in a duel. This is, this is just like Hamilton. It is, and it's also just like our episode we did about the Battle of Lake Erie, where we focused on the aftermath and the sparring that went on between Perry and Jesse Elliott, his second in command at the battle. And just the, you know, this one years long, just because Perry did not praise Elliott enough <laughs> for what he had done in the battle. This is the period of that type of stuff where people are fighting duels because one guy, you know, used the wrong tone when he was talking to him in a in a bar or something or, you know, didn't take off his hat the right way. So from Marvin Duke here. In his first encounter, Stockton became indignant after reading the contemptuous and insulting language about Yankees written by a British officer under the comments of an American officer certifying the competence of a stevedore. Stockton sought out the offender and requested either an apology or satisfaction. As the British officer refused to apologize, Stockton gained his satisfaction during the ensuing duel when the Britisher received a shot in the leg. This is not the only duel that he will fight, and it actually turns out Stockton's pretty good at it. (laughs) (laughs) So better than Alexander Hamilton. So some unspecified amount of time later... Uh, Duke doesn't give details here. Stockton found himself obligated to defend another American suffering abuse at the hands of the British. This is another thing is he's not fighting these duels for himself. He's fighting them for America. (laughs) He's dueling for America. He's dueling for (laughs) Uncle Sam, an American captain, uh, a merchant captain in Gibraltar. So this isn't even the U.S. Navy. 
uh, an American captain in Gibraltar was arrested for walking at night without a lantern, which okay. there were restrictions against this after a certain time. If you were on the streets, you needed light. You needed a lantern. Is is that to show you weren't being sneaky, basically? To show that you're not sneaking around here. And apparently, at least he claimed this this captain was not aware of this rule, which mm-hmm. is, you know, think what you want about that. A merchant captain probably knows the rules in Gibraltar if he's doing business there. But he was apparently stopped like a matter of feet away from his boarding house when he would have mm. been totally fine by, you know, British patrol. And after the captain's release at the urging of the U.S. consul, that captain challenged the British officer to a duel, which was refused. I mean, if you're a British officer, why would you care about this American merchant captain situation where that looks good on your resume, less good on mine? Right. If I have a duel with you, I'm lowering myself to your level. Stockton heard about this and challenged that British officer to a duel himself, <laughs> thinking, well, I'm, I'm a member of the U.S. Navy. I'm a ship captain. He's got to accept a, a duel from me. That duel went forward with the British officer being wounded in the leg. He liked to shoot people in the leg. <laughs> I, <laughs> he's quick. Like, he's still like, got it on the upswing as he's, I, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's clearly not out for blood in the sense that he wants to kill these people. He's just trying to prove, like, I'm really good at this. However, for, for some reason that's not specified, Stockton continued to label this officer a coward. I'm assuming some, something about his behavior during the duel. I think that's hilarious, though. Like, you, you dueled the guy and you're still, you're still a coward. Sometime later, when Stockton was back in Gibraltar again, he fought another duel with the same officer, <laughs> wounding him again. Can, can you imagine when he comes back and, like, one of the officer's friends is like, you'll never believe who's back, sir. Well, what this reminds me of is how in, like, the NFL, if a team, one team beats another early in the season and then they play again in the playoffs, they mm-hmm. always say, like, it's hard to beat the same team twice because, you know, they, they know what you're going to do. This guy beat the same guy in a duel two times. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty impressive. It is. So this guy fights multiple duels, apparently never is wounded in any of them. So back to his time in the African squadron, he set sail in command of the alligator on September 21st, 1821. By December 15th of that same year, he had found a spot that he considered a suitable place to be fixed on for a future settlement. And he had taken steps to acquire it from the local inhabitants. I love that. It looks like no one's really using this. Well, there, there's a list in, in, that, uh, in that article about his early career. There was technically an exchange of goods for this you know, territory, but much like uh, what happened in North America in those situations, there's always coercion also. Um, mm-hmm. There was force used here. I mean, I think it's like anything else, right? It's like, here, you can take what we're giving you and not complain, or we can do it the other way. Like, I don't care. It was very much not just a free exchange of goods for territory. A town would be founded on this location about four months later uh, as a destination for former slaves to be repatriated. And that that whole process, there's just so much. There's so many layers to the whole repatriation process for freed slaves. That's something I'd like to learn more about because I know nothing about like the establishment of Liberia and all that. You know, in the American South, you you did have, you know, you'd, you'd have slaves who would either be freed or may, maybe they would buy their their freedom from from their master. So you did have a, a fair population of freed black Americans in the South, which kind of was an awkward situation for white Southerners. So it 
it benefited them to find some place to send these people. So, you know, yeah, the- I, mean, I think when you think about it, like a free African American isn't a useful one from the perspective of like a plantation owner or anyone you know, higher up, like they don't provide any usefulness. They're just mm-hmm. consuming your resources. So right. what you, like they're not, I guess my point being is this isn't like an altruistic thing. This exactly. is a practical thing. There certainly are those elements of this movement who are doing it for at least what they think are, are altruistic are good reasons of saying, well, we took these people from this place. We should we should send them back. However, very little attention is paid to where they're actually sending them back to. It has a little streak of why can't the Palestinians just live in the desert of Egypt? Exactly. It's very similar to that. We're giving them land somewhere. Isn't that good enough? Right. So this settlement would be named for the U.S. president at the time, and it still bears that name, Monrovia. Kind of surprised that... It's still called that. And also, like, why? Why would he want? Like, was he excited about this? Well, I think the idea that this was being presented as a as a a beneficent move on the on the part of the United States. I guess it is part of the whole package, isn't it? You can't call it like Freeville or something. You have to call it. That is what the British call the capital of Sierra Leone. They call it Freetown. Is it really? Yes, I think it's still called that. <laughs> Yes, Freetown is the capital and largest city of Sierra Leone. So yeah. Go, go uh, Great Britain. Uh, Monrovia, of course, still today, the capital of Liberia. The nation itself wouldn't be founded until 1847, uh, but this is the area that it, it grows up around. There's a whole mess of stuff you could get into that leads even today until the conflicts in Liberia, where you have these repatriated freed slaves who essentially become the colonizers themselves. Right. That's a really weird situation. It is. It gets into that conversation about colonizer and colonized, you know, what is an indigenous person Mm -hmm. um, and how that's all based on the context of the location. Yes, you have freed black Americans who were taken in into slavery and are being sent back, but they're not being sent back to where they came from. And so essentially they have to colonize an area uh, of Africa that leads to divisions that exist today. There's probably like, I'm sure, I know, there's like entire doctoral theses mm-hmm. probably written about this kind of stuff. Absolutely. So back to our guy here. All of Stockton's experience, coupled with his connections to high up individuals and government, they came together to give him the freedom and creative control over the construction of the Princeton and the design of her guns. We talked about the Peacemaker being constructed from wrought iron, although initially there was a cast iron gun that would have been installed. Okay. When fired in a dual test in 1842, along with the guns sent over from Britain, the cast iron cannon broke after firing 18 rounds, while the wrought iron gun continued firing with apparently no change in performance for up to 50 rounds. Okay, so there is a usefulness difference here. So really, this is all the proof that Stockton needed to request another wrought iron gun. This would be the peacemaker. So now we're closing in on the incident here. So the uh, Princeton is built at Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And so to get her guns, uh, those are installed in New York. So with those guns installed on the Princeton, Stockton wrote to the Navy secretary. The big guns of the Princeton can be fired with an effect terrific and almost incredible and with a certainty heretofore unknown. Uh, and that quote comes from 
J. Harlan O'Connell's write-up on the USS Princeton. Next, the Princeton would set off for Washington, where she could be shown off you know, to the nation's capital. Funny bit here, we mentioned John Erickson earlier. He's kind of a co-designer of this ship with Stockton, and he oversaw her construction. According to Erickson, he was supposed to accompany Stockton on this trip to Washington. So he's in New York. He says, waiting at the foot of Wall Street for the Princeton to pick him up, he was disappointed when the Princeton steamed past without stopping. Isn't that awesome, though, that you expect the Navy's new big toy to like just stop and personally pick you up? It doesn't happen. So it's very possible that he was intentionally left behind <laughs> and then ultimately just you know chose not to pursue it. The Princeton did stop over in Philadelphia for two weeks. So he could have gotten this done if he'd really wanted it. Right. If, if he had truly really wanted to after that point, he, he definitely could have. She was in Philadelphia from January 26th to February 10th. He could have caught up to her if, if he had really, really wanted to. As we'll see, maybe he just had a gut feeling that he should stay home. Princeton arrived on February 13th, where she caused quite a bit of interest due to her enormous guns and her new style of construction. Samuel Baird, who would later write a sketch of Stockton's life, captured some of the sentiment that the Princeton instilled in the public. Her speed and sailing qualities, her admirable model, the impregnable security of her motive power, and her powerful armament made her an object of universal admiration. Wherever she appeared, immense crowds gathered to witness her evolutions and inspect her machinery. I'm reminded a bit of the Moselle, mm -hmm. which is coming up on its one-year anniversary of our episode. Yeah, I saw you post about that. The Moselle uh, had exploded in 1838, and that was another situation where you had these massive crowds assembling just to see her on the river. You know, people who had no intention of getting on board or traveling on her, they just wanted to see this thing. Uh, and then another part of that quote, Bayard mentions the impregnable security for motive power. This is just a reference to her propulsion system. Her, this is a screw steamer. She has these propellers that are submerged underwater. So unlike the big paddle wheels, they're not exposed to enemy fire. So for a warship, this is a big deal. Yeah, I guess that's something you don't really think about, but it is a very big deal that, A, you're not like, subject to wind quite as much like you can make your own wind right and you know also yeah that it is hidden from enemy fire it's a pretty big uh advantage for surviving an encounter a savvy promoter of himself and his creation stockton immediately went to work in the fertile ground of the nation's capital in an effort that would make modern public relations firms envious Stockton extended invitations to the chief executive, members of the Senate and House of Representatives, and the upper crust of Washington society to visit the ship. On February 16th, Stockton provided a demonstration to the general public and members of the government with a trip down the Potomac, which was capped with the firing of the peacemaker. I mean, this guy's like a lobbyist on top of all uh, everything else. I love it. Sort of. Yeah, he's kind of a mix like entrepreneur lobbyist. So this same thing was repeated on the 18th and the 20th. Firing demonstration on the 20th was particularly impressive given the amount of powder used for the shot. Nearly 50 pounds. That's a lot of powder. I don't know what the normal charge would be, but this was a ridiculously large amount of powder for a wrought iron gun. And it sent a ball about four miles. 
before it stopped. Do you think they legitimately had a target they were shooting at? Or they're like, eh, there's nothing over there. Just shoot it that way. From some of the descriptions, they were they were firing at times into like the whatever was to the side of the river. I, I assume <laughs> they were checking to make sure there was nothing there first. Some of them sounded like they were being fired down river. Okay. And so additionally, the gun was fired at least five times on that excursion on the 20th. So the ship seems to be operating well. Stockton clearly has a lot of trust in his pretty state-of-the-art guns. The carbon fiber is holding. With all of this hubbub about the, the new ship and her guns, a gala trip is arranged for President Tyler. This is President John Tyler uh, and other members of the government for February 28th. On February 28th, President Tyler consented to visit Princeton. And with him came, it seemed, practically half of the federal government. Cabinet members, military officials, statesmen, and diplomats. As well as prominent citizens from the federal city and their ladies. Even Dolly Madison, the former first lady, was in attendance. So everybody who's anybody is, is trying to get on this trip with, uh, with President Tyler. Th- those previous trips, these, these were essentially open to the general public. People could come and I, I don't know if admission was charged um, or if this was just a, something for free that anyone could come and see. But you had rich, high society people, uh, government people, and you had just pretty regular people uh, on hand for this. I can't emphasize enough that there just wasn't a lot to do back in the day. So, yeah, this probably was really exciting. I think it's how you explain the emergence of a game like cricket. There's there's no other reason for that (laughs) game to exist other than the fact that there was nothing else to do. Also noteworthy here is that you've got the president mingling with anybody else who wants to be there. Presidential security is also not really a thing that is as big of a deal at the time, because this is before any of our presidents have been assassinated. Yeah, you can just walk right up to them in a train station if you wanted to, right? You could do that. All in all, about 350 people attended the president as he boarded the Joseph Johnson in Washington, bound for Alexandria. Alexandria, basically just a suburb of Washington. It's where uh, Remember the Titans happens. Yes, if you've seen the movie Remember the Titans, it happens in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, So at Alexandria, they moved over to the Princeton for an excursion to Mount Vernon and then back. For those not familiar with U.S. geography, none of these places are very far away from each other. No. Like, this is not a very far trip. Today, you would call all of this Washington, D.C., essentially. Mount Vernon, for those not familiar with that, that was the home estate of George Washington. Where he treated his slaves very nicely. Yes, and he never mistreated them at all, and he wanted them all to be free when he died. (laughs) You know, for for a young country like the United States of America, this is kind of the closest thing that America has to like holy ground mm-hmm. uh, in its in its you know early years. This is the the place where where George Washington lived and the place where he retired to. I know we visited when we were pretty little. I, I know I've been to Mount Vernon, but I was probably like seven. I, I remember it decently. I would like to go back now um, with a broader, deeper understanding mm-hmm. of uh, American history. But right. yeah, that is a good way of explaining it. That for a younger nation, but so steeped in our own history, that, that is one of those like holy sites. Almost. Especially, you know, we have a, a rash of early presidents who are all from Virginia. And so this is this is, you know, one of those places where they they all have this kind of inherent connection to um, John mm-hmm. Tyler is Virginian. A bunch of his cabinet and his advisors are from Virginia. 
Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, this is this is a place that is going to have a lot of significance. Um, Isn't James Monroe also from Virginia? Monroe is from Virginia. Jefferson's from Virginia. Madison is from Virginia. I don't think Madison is. I think is. Madison was from Virginia. Well, maybe. Uh, or Oh, I think he is because James Madison is in Virginia, isn't it? They had a bit of a dynasty going on. Uh, I think Adams is like the only of the really early presidents who isn't from Virginia. Uh, um, yeah, he is from Virginia, too. So, yeah, you're right. He's the only one. And so, obviously, this is a little bit later. This isn't quite Founding Fathers era, but, you know, Virginia still has this pretty tight hold over the upper echelons of government. Really, until it leaves uh, in a, a few more years. It, uh... That's the only way to, to end a dynasty sometimes. You got to change conference. <laughs> that one got me pretty good. <laughs> so two of the aforementioned cabinet members in attendance were Secretary of State Abel Upshur and Secretary of the Navy Thomas Gilmer. It's a bit confusing researching these two. Like I said at the beginning, I don't know how Jerry does it. I don't know keeping all these cabinet things straight when they're changing all these you know, so frequently. There's some very recent shuffling in the cabinet. Abel Upshur, the Secretary of State, he had previously served as Secretary of the Navy from October 1841 to July 1843 when he was moved, I guess you'd say promoted to the State Department position. Upshur was a longtime friend of fellow Virginian John Tyler. And he'd been a major advocate for the admission of Texas into the Union as a slave state, as well as one of the negotiators of the Oregon border dispute with Britain. That's raging at this point, where you've got this standoff in the Pacific Northwest between the U.S. and Britain as to where is the border. Actually, I think it's, I think it's James Polk who gets elected on his, uh, I think his motto is 54-40 or fight. Uh, saying, where, where is the border going to be with, with Canada? <laughs> it's so American. Yeah. Secretary of the Navy Thomas Gilmer, he'd only been in his position since February 19th. So okay, nine days he's been in this position. Before accepting the Navy position, he had served in the House of Representatives, representing Virginia. He'd been the 28th governor of Virginia and speaker of the Virginia House of Delegates. Okay, so he's he's done this kind of thing before. One of the prominent citizens from the federal city that we mentioned was lawyer and former New York State Senator David Gardner. He's referred to by Pearson as Colonel Gardner. I can't see anything else to show him having that rank. He's one of the he's one of those colonels. He's like a Kentucky colonel. He's like okay. Colonel Sanders or like Colonel House we talked about with <laughs> Wilson. Accompanying Gardner was his 23-year-old daughter, Julia. President Tyler would write later about the scene on board the Princeton. Never did the eye gaze on a brighter or more animated scene than that which the beautiful river exhibited during the forenoon of that fateful day. There floated the ship whereon had been concentrated so many hopes and anticipated joys. The decks were soon crowded with a host of happy visitors. A cloudless sky added to the brilliancy of the scene. I think forenoon is a useful word that we don't really use anymore to talk about like the late morning. Yeah. I kind of like that too. Like, yeah, I, I, I kind of like to eat lunch in the forenoon. Like I'm an mm -hmm. 11, 1130 lunch kind of person. The Princeton departed down river for Mount Vernon at one in the afternoon, arriving a little after three. So again, you said these places aren't very far apart. Even at the time, it only takes about two hours by steamboat. During this leg of the trip, the peacemaker was fired once 
much to the enjoyment of the crowd on board. Can you imagine just being a worker in the fields as <laughs> along the river? Like you don't know what this is or why it's there. Especially when you think about the fact that a lot of the workers in the fields at this time would have been slaves. Yeah, so I, yeah, exactly. Making making your day even worse. Is this basically hooning? Presidential hooning. Presidential hooning. Governmental hooning. So yeah, for a lot of the people on board, like the gun is what they want to see. Fire the gun. We want to see the gun. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Because like I, I want to see the gun shoot too. I want to be clear. Like I am not better than these people. I want to see the gun shoot. Everybody wants to see the gun. Reaching Mount Vernon, the Princeton was brought about for the return leg, and then 10 minutes later, the Peacemaker is fired again. So they're not really visiting Mount Vernon. It's just kind of a destination. It's a good place to go and turn around. Is everybody just like, ah, George would have loved this? I mean, he probably would have. Uh, Washington military guy, he probably would have been impressed by a really big gun. So after this second firing, most of those on board went below decks to enjoy a feast. There's so many people on board that they have to eat in shifts. Okay. Do you want to guess how they divided the shifts up? Um, it's, it's pretty funny. How did they do it? The men ate first. Okay. And then the women ate. I, I, I was going to say men and women, but I thought like, <laughs> no, they wouldn't do that. Would they? <laughs> and the men, and then you said the men ate first. Yeah, the men ate first. And then when they were finished, the women got to eat. <laughs> That's going on below decks and that and that's kind of like the way this is supposed to go like okay we saw the gunfire a couple times now everyone go below decks now it's getting into the afternoon um late afternoon it's just gonna be a chill trip back to trip up the potomac yeah some people they go back to the top deck later to enjoy what is you know a crisp late afternoon it's february so a little chilly but probably nice enough that you, you you could be on deck at 4 p.m., Stockton receives word that a group of gentlemen wanted to see the gun fired one more time. This is the little kids on the school bus, like, holding their hands up, wanting the truck driver to honk the air horn. And Stockton knew his guns pretty well, and he was reluctant to do this. Um, the peacemaker still would have been heated from her last firing, which had been you know, less than an hour earlier. At the urging, apparently, of Navy Secretary Thomas Gilmer, Stockton agreed to one more firing. So Stockton, they were like, come on, man, don't, don't you, we like you. Don't you want us to like you and be your friend? And we're always looking for lessons learned. Uh, here, I guess, uh, literally stick to your guns. You know, if, you, if, you, if you, know, <laughs> you know what you want to do, just like go with your gut instinct. Don't bow into peer pressure. Even if it's the Secretary of the Navy. Stockton took things slowly and deliberately to prepare the peacemaker for what he definitely hoped would be its last use of the day. I love that he just knows this is a bad idea. Well, and, and this whole time, he's been the one, apparently, who's, who's been directing everything. He's, he's responsible for the, the loading, the firing, the maintenance of the gun. He wants everything to go perfectly, and so he takes personal control over these things. I would like to think, though, if I was one of the people that wanted to see the gun shoot, and the guy whose job is to be like zookeeper of the gun says, mm, maybe not. I'd probably be like, oh, OK, cool. You know yeah. more than me. I'm going to trust you. The gun was charged with 25 pounds of powder, which I think was a more, a more normal amount of powder compared to the okay. 50 from earlier. With the crowd reportedly growing closer and closer to observe the process. You know, this is a fancy big gun. We want to see how this thing works. At least two observers climbed up some of the lower rigging for a better view. 
Approaching 4.30, the gun was ready to fire, and the excitement grew. It's interesting that, like, how much of a process this is. Like, it's not as simple as, like, put the, you know, load it up, pack in the powder, and shoot it. It's very much a deliberate process you have to go through. Well, and you can see that with the way that the ship is armed. She has these two massive guns, but most of her armament is these smaller carronades. Like, if she's in combat, she's going to be using these smaller guns much, much more. Whereas mm-hmm. the big guns are only going to be used occasionally because you've got to wait for these things to be ready to fire again. It's like um, time has been lowered, but it's kind of like, you know, reading about like the siege of Constantinople. Mehmed has these massive guns, but you can only fire them like once a day because mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you've got to let them cool and you've got to make sure everything is maintained well. Below deck, the president is socializing with David Gardner, okay. Gardner's daughter, Julia. And the mayor of Washington, William Winston Seton, when they're urged to go above to witness the peacemaker in action once more. Somewhat fortuitously for President Tyler, one of the ladies below decks proposed a toast, which delayed Tyler, Mayor Seton, and Julia Gardner. Right at 4.30 p.m., the peacemakers fired. Donald Shamet narrates what followed. The roar was ferocious, and the smoke blanketed the ship in a pall, difficult to penetrate. When it cleared, it had become painfully apparent that a disaster of enormous consequence had occurred. The giant gun had burst apart three feet from the breach, scattering death and destruction indiscriminately among both the illustrious and the lowly. Bodies were mangled beyond description by the shrapnel, which splattered everything and every one near the gun. Lying dead and wounded were more than two dozen people. A Mrs. Pember, who was another eyewitness, related her story as follows. A strange stillness followed in the vicinity of the explosion. But on the quarterdeck, the company could be heard laughing amid the buzz of many voices. Suddenly, overmastering all sounds, Lieutenant Johnson's trumpet rang out sharply. Lower a boat. A woman is overboard. Send all aft. Stretch a rope across all the deck. Some minutes after, Captain Stockton was led below by two sailors, his full black wig blown away and his head bound up on cloths saturated with blood. You can remember here, Stockton is the one who's personally firing the gun. Mm-hmm. Which, I guess somewhat strangely, seems to put him in one of the safest places he could be which is more directly behind where the gun's firing. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's a little bit like if you're watching someone hit a golf ball or baseball, the best place to be is behind them and to their left if they're doing it right-handed, you know? Charles Davis, who's one of those observers who had climbed up into the rigging to see better, he was totally unharmed in the explosion, uh, but described what he saw. I saw Stockton fire the gun. And then for a few seconds, all was darkness to me. And then the scene presented was devastation in the group directly under me. So Stockton, like we said, escapes. Mostly unharmed, except for losing his wig and having all of his hair singed off. Less fortunate were the Secretary of State, Abel Upshur, and Navy Secretary Thomas Gilmer. Both men lay dead on the deck of the Princeton. 
Like, that's wild. Think about that today. This is like a decapitation strike <laughs> against the cabinet. I mean, just the idea of having all these high-ranking cabinet members crowding around this somewhat experimental weapon. It's like if, I don't know, you had like Harry Truman had been at the Los Alamos testing for the first atomic bomb. <laughs> you just don't know what's going to happen. So Upshur and Gilmer are dead immediately. Uh, along with them are Virgil Maxey, the charge d'affaires to Belgium, Commodore Beverly Kennan, chief of the Navy Bureau of Construction, David Gardner, father of Julia, and Armistead, President Tyler's servant is how he's described in a lot of the sources. Uh, Armistead's a slave. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know for sure. I, I think he's described as a servant to sort of whitewash the situation a little bit, but Armistead is uh, enslaved. John Tyler was one of eight U.S. presidents who owned slaves while in office. Interesting. Congressman George Sykes, who was an eyewitness, he reported that Armistead actually lived for some time after the explosion and that there were no visible wounds that could be found by surgeons on hand. So, so that was purely like a concussive. It, it seems like he probably died purely of the concussive force. Um, I don't know how long he apparently lived after this or if he was able to move, able to talk or anything. So they into the aftermath of the explosion. No single person was held responsible for the accident. Actually, something I forgot to add here. I don't know how I forgot this. So, of course, Gardner being killed in this explosion, Julia was safely below decks when this happened. Um, but she apparently, you know, faints from shock when she hears that this has happened and her father has been killed. And the story goes that when she awakens from this fainting spell, she's in the arms of who else but President Tyler, <laughs> who had been somewhat recently widowed. <laughs> so he was single at this point. Sorry, your dad's dead. <laughs> they apparently you know, develop a relationship and they actually get married just a few months later. So Julia Gardner becomes uh, the first lady of the United States for, I think, eight months until the end of Tyler's presidency. That's probably a good way to do it. Honestly, you get all the fun of being a first lady without really having to put up with much of it. So the aftermath of this explosion, no single person was held responsible for the accident that had killed six members of Washington society and very easily could have killed the president. If he, if he that goes up crazy. with the rest of them, he's probably standing with his cabinet people. When this happens, apparently the people killed were all standing to the left of the gun when it exploded. Very possible that Tyler is, is killed uh, in this freak accident. Tyler actually described the explosion of the peacemaker as. One of those tragedies which are invariably incident to the temporal affairs of mankind. Sort of back to the Moselle and a lot of incidents like this. It, the first thing is to say, well, we don't know why this happened. You know, God works in mysterious ways. And then you don't really have to interrogate it further. Tyler was also quick to look out for Stockton's reputation, saying that the tragedy in no means detracted from the value of the improvements contemplated in the construction of the Princeton. Um, which is true. The ship appears to have performed admirably. There's no issues with the ship, actually. The Peacemaker incident did at least delay further construction of screw steamer warships, though. Interesting. Stockton himself requested a judicial inquiry, which Lee Pearson describes here. 
The precept stated that the question was the conduct of Captain Stockton and officers in relation to the experiments and proofs which preceded the construction and the proof and subsequent explosions. Here's where our buddy John Erickson comes back into the story. John Erickson, who was left forlorn on the on the docks uh, in New York <laughs> as he watched the Princeton you know, steam pass and leave him behind. John Erickson, who was deprived of all his credit for the gun and the ship, he was invited to provide evidence in the case, but he declined. <laughs> you can read it in a Swedish accent if you want. <laughs> How differently should I have regarded an invitation from Captain Stockton a week ago? I might then have it in my power to render good service and valuable counsel. Now, I can be of no use. Sorry you didn't bring me on your little trip to Washington. I could have helped. That has some, like, Dwight Schrute and Michael Scott energy. <laughs> Possibly this is a response to his being denied the credit he felt he deserved. Maybe he's just being vindictive and he, he's just trying to get Stockton back. But alternatively, you could just see this as him wanting to keep as far away from this as possible now. Yeah. Now that this has exploded and killed several members of the cabinet, why would I, why would I want people to know that I was associated with this? <laughs> a separate investigation, also at Stockton's request, was held by the Committee on Science and Arts of the Franklin Institute. So this wasn't focused on the legal factors or assigning blame for the incident, but just on what could have caused the explosion. So he's basically asking for like an NTSB report. Mm -hmm. Okay, how did this actually happen? The physics and the metalworking details are way over my head. But after analysis of the pieces that were recovered, some of them had gone overboard into the Potomac. There were some faults found with the construction and the welding of the gun. Quoting from Pearson here. Bands were welded on the American gun, whereas those on the English gun had been shrunk on. In terms of modern metallurgical practice, this use of welded bands was a gross error in design. Shrunk on bands would have served as crack arresters, whereas welded bands permitted any cracking to enlarge. And I don't know if this was a difference in practice between cast iron and wrought iron. Maybe the welded on bands would have worked for a cast iron gun, mm -hmm. but not for wrought iron. I, I really don't know. Again, anyone interested in the, the casting of these guns, that Pearson article has the whole story on that. Navy officers with knowledge of the gun's casting surmise that due to its size and method of construction, the gun would have been held at welding temperature for longer periods than normal, causing the metal to weaken. Interesting. So that kind of comes back to why this was perfectly doable with small arms. You didn't need to have these things heated to, to this temperature for nearly the same length of time. So it didn't cause those problems. Whereas with such a big gun, being held at that high temperature apparently is going to weaken the metal. Hmm. Stockton's career continued with really no major hindrance because of this incident. A couple years later, during the war with Mexico, it was Stockton who's responsible for military operations in California. And I was thinking he he probably comes up in the book you were reading about Kit Carson. He's probably at he least mentioned. He is actually a very prominent person in that book. And it's really funny that you say that because I didn't even really associate the two. I didn't, it didn't even connect in my head that that was the same Robert Stockton. Mm -hmm. And it's actually his actions in California that lead to the city of Stockton, California. Being Forgot named that. who he had, I think, was it him and Fremont that hated each other? 
I had seen something with with him and John C. Fremont, and I don't know if it was like a rivalry or what. Yeah, I think from what I uh, recall from the book, uh, they did not get along well. And I believe Fremont ends up getting the better of it. He's the one I think that more people probably associate with California. than Because I think Stockton and Carson are... I forgot how they're connected to each other, but they do have some sort of a connection. I don't know if it's through um, some sort of a marriage or something or what, but like they're definitely friends with each other. The Princeton also would serve in the Gulf of Mexico during the war. You know, if you know anything about the Mexican-American War, it's it's a pretty uneven fight. Mm -hmm. Ulysses Grant, you know, he's he's very famous for calling this one of the most unjust wars ever waged by a stronger nation against a weaker one. So this is one where there's no major naval engagements in in the Mexican-American War. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, like naval vessel vessels are used in the landings at Veracruz. But, you know, apparently the Princeton does her job and does it pretty well during that time. Stockton left the Navy in 1850, but he did actually return to some military service during the American Civil War as a commander of the New Jersey militia. I don't I don't think he actually sees combat. Kind of makes sense, though. You have someone like that who's old experience. You probably don't want him doing combat, but he knows how like a, a military unit runs. Yeah, I think he would have been in his 60s, maybe 70s by this point. And that's an 1860s or 70s. So, Yes, that's every one of those years probably uh, is felt. <laughs> and so I think they're really only kind of called up to be sort of on call. So that's kind of the last service that Stockton provides. Stockton dies in 1866. Oh, yeah. So right after at the age of 71. So, yeah, that's that's kind of Stockton's story. I didn't really look into the later history of the Princeton. I mean, this is the thing that she's known for. Mm -hmm. If you you know, if you Google USS Princeton, except for the later iterations of the Princeton later ships that are named that this is the thing that she's remembered for far more than anything else is the explosion of the peacemaker. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's our story. This is a, a story from American history that I had never heard of before. This is, you know, this is the most shocking day for the U.S. government, probably until Lincoln is assassinated. Mm-hmm. I would imagine losing two of your cabinet secretaries in one go. And again, very easily could have been the president. It's a it's a really crazy story. Um, so uh, this kind of started out as just a, a space filler while I worked on bigger stories and it turned into something much bigger. This is going to be a pretty long episode. Mm-hmm. That's what we've got about the Princeton and the peacemaker. Yeah, that was an interesting one. I honestly, I don't know that I knew that story or if I had heard of it, it, I didn't know the details of it by any means. Definitely a lot of the characters and names are people that I've read about quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know that I could have told you that this happens. I think I knew that there was a big gun at some point that was called the peacemaker, but I didn't know anything else about it. Yeah. Glad we were able to fill in some gaps here. Yeah, no, that's a good one. That was a that was a fun episode, and we brought it back to the Titanic submersible and Kit Carson. Look at that. Yeah, we're tying it. Everything connects. Uh, so we will talk to you again next week. Take care, everyone. <laughs>